hey, Dad, why are we going to the temple? Why is there so many rules and... What's all that all about? What's all that all about? Well, let me tell you, son. We go to the temple because of something happened many, many years ago. In fact, <clears throat> this was true of your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather. You got time for a story? All right, here's the story. We used to be in slavery. You know what slavery is? Yes, I it, do. It's not good, right? All right. This was such a horrible time. For over 400 years, your grandparents and my grandparents were in bondage. And it was very confusing because God had made a promise to us that we were going to have this great nation, we were going to have our own land, that the Messiah was going to be born out of it. And we were looking for that day. Next thing you know, we're in slavery. We don't own our own houses. We don't have our own jobs. We don't have our own businesses. Every day I could hear the sound of people being beaten out in the street because they weren't working hard enough. You think I'm tough. Man, those were tough days. But let me tell you something else, though. In the middle of this, God was teaching us some important things. He gave us some things that he wanted us to do. He gave us a way that we were supposed to live, and he gave us things that we were supposed to do to help us remember who he was, that he still loved us, that he hadn't forgotten about us, and that one day he was going to keep all of his promises to us. And here's the cool thing, man. What happened was, all of a sudden, God picked a leader. His name was Moses. You know who we're talking about here. All right, his name was Moses. And this is what happened. All of a sudden, God started causing tensions between the slaves and the masters by sending incredible plagues. I mean, one time, frogs. Frogs everywhere! Another time, flies. Flies everywhere! And then there was the time whenever it went dark during the middle of the day, and everybody was scared to death. There was a time, at the very end, at the very end, you're the oldest, Kai, in our family. There was a time when God warned us, and he said, you got to kill a little lamb, put some blood over the doorpost, go through this certain service, otherwise the firstborn child in every family dies. That would have been you, Kai. But because we did what God said, we put the blood over the doorpost, that night you were alive. But you could hear people screaming all over the side of the uh, city side. You could hear people crying. They'd wake up, they'd go into their kid's room, and their kid would be dead because they didn't listen to God. And so finally God said, you can go, you can leave. And we were leaving and we thought we were in all kinds of freedom and everything. And then all of a sudden we came up to this big ocean and we couldn't see across it. And then we looked behind and here comes Pharaoh and all of his armies. He's going to kill everybody. And, and, and Moses went out and took his rod and put it over the water and the water went apart. And we went through it. And then when we looked back to see what was happening, all of Pharaoh's armies were coming through and boom, the water came in, drowned them all. And that just reminded us one more time that God was in charge. I can tell you story after story after story, but here's the bottom line. The reason we have all these rules and all these systems is because we have a tendency to forget how much we need God. And when we go to temple and we watch everything that happens there, we kind of have to stop and remember that God is in charge and he's got a plan for our life. That's why. We go to temple. All right. Thanks, Kai. Appreciate it. All right. What you just saw there was the passage we just read. That's exactly what we just read. God said, I want you to leave a legacy behind. 
I want your kids to know the values. I want, to, I want them to know me. I want them to know why we do what we do. I want them to know all these things. And there's going to come times when your kid's going to look at you and say, Dad, what is the meaning of all this ritual? What is the meaning of all these commandments? What is the meaning of all these rules? Why do we do what we do? And he said, that's your moment. You share the old, old stories. You share the history of our people. You share how God has worked in history and in their lives to bring them to this point and that if God has brought them here, he's got a better place in the future he's still taking them to. That his promises are sure, that his power is all, and that we are on a journey that God has put in place. That's literally the passage we read this morning. And that is indeed part of leaving a legacy behind. It's about telling stories, the right stories. Now, this morning I want you to understand that this may seem like the stupidest, simplest, most elementary message you've ever heard me give. And I want you to hear, and it also may be the most important one, in terms of bringing your children along spiritually. Because what we read in this passage this morning, what you just saw semi, somewhat demonstrated here, is an important tool that God has given us and challenged us to use in the transferal of our values, of our spiritual journey, of God's providence, of their reason for being where they're at. And we're foolish to ignore it. And it's something that every single one of us can do. Every person in this room can do it. But I will also say this. We're not doing it. And I have also brought a second sermon illustration with me this morning. And I have brought with me the two, what I believe are two of the greatest impediments to family discipleship, to sharing stories, to communicating with the generation to come. May I show you those? Many of you had planned to do this as soon as you got in the car today, but now you'll feel guilty if you do. But literally, and if this was you, please, I'm not trying to embarrass you because I wear them too. I saw several people wearing them into church this morning, between services even. You know what this does? It allows us to isolate. And whether it's something like AirPods or it's headphones or just simply over-focus on an iPad, or some other device. The reality is that we have become experts in checking out of our own families and engaging intensely with people who, quite frankly, don't give a rip about what you think or are or going or doing other than the fact that you are there to be exploited. And yet we give them a slavish devotion 
that absolutely monopolizes our time, our attention, and our communication. Let me give you just a few statistics, if I might. According to Common Sense Media, which is the best source there is, in my opinion, for media habits among our generation, and they do worldwide research, in 2022, so this is fresh, this is super fresh, the average teenager, kid 13 to 18, consumes eight hours and 39 minutes of screen time per day. That can be TV, but very little TV for this generation. TV, phone, pads, computers, video games. Eight hours, 39 minutes. That's up 17% from 2019, thank you, COVID. The average tween, which is a term I really loathe, but it is what we're calling now, kids between the ages of 8 and 13, so they're 8 to 12, basically, and it's between, you know, young preschool kids. And by the way, your kid's character is largely formed by the time they're 7 or 8, but the, the, the reality is they've caught this new division between 8 and 12 years age, tweens, and the amount of time they're spending is 5 hours and 33 minutes. And you consider that a lot of parents are resisting giving their kids devices until they're 9, 10, or 11, this is particularly alarming, and it seems to indicate that as soon as they get a device, they're up at eight plus hours when you look at the, the actual data. There is no indication at all in the last seven years that that number is dropping or will drop in the future, and in total, it is up 28% for teens and 20% for tweens since 2015. Boys watch more screen than girls, minorities watch more than white, and middle class watches the most of all. I think many of us in this room would identify ourselves as middle class. But by just about every survey that I could find, the average child in this country is spending more time concerning just YouTube or TikTok videos than they are being in just the same room. I'm not talking about talking. I'm just talking about being in the general vicinity of their parents, that they are spending more time glued in to TikTok and YouTube alone than they are in spending time with their parents in being in the same room because they're spending more than two hours on YouTube and TikTok and less than two hours in the same general presence of their parents, according to the research, according to the data. And by the way, they're spending far more time watching or listening to just the ads on YouTube and TikTok than they are in actually conversing with their parents, which averages about seven minutes per day. So, can we agree that maybe we have a problem here? Can we agree that it's not just the other person? It's highly likely that it has infested our home as well. And can we agree that the people that are feeding this information into the eyes and ears of our children do not have any interest whatsoever in their spiritual development, but instead are actively indoctrinating our kids with a value system that runs contrary to a biblical worldview. And if we don't agree on that, then seriously, let's have a conversation because you are closing your eyes and your ears to the obvious consequence, the obvious habits, and the obvious research that right now is telling us that we have a problem in this nation, and churches and Christians and those of us who are just like us 
are not exempt from it. In fact, we're part of it. And it is having consequences, real consequences, in our homes. So, by the way, my name's Dan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I didn't even introduce myself. So if you're visiting, that's who this guy up here ranting and raving is. And trust me, I'm only getting started, all right? We've been studying Deuteronomy chapter 6 for several weeks now. And this is a sermon by Moses on the responsibility and mission that parents of the nation of Israel had, that they were to leave a legacy with their children. And this legacy was to be about God's hand, mission, purpose, calling, and plan for the Israelite nation. It's an outline, by the way, for the intergenerational transfer of history, of the transfer of things like tradition and culture and values and faith and beliefs in a nation of families and tribes. Its foundation was built on their love for and obedience to God in whose image they were created. And they were called and commanded to see that those values, that perspective, that allegiance, that obedience was ingrained on each succeeding generation lest they lose sight of all that God had done for them, all that he had prepared for them, all that he had promised to fulfill through them in the future. And so Moses, under the direction of God, was very specifically giving instruction to the moms and dads and grandparents and aunts and uncles and elders and leaders of the nation of Israel and said, this isn't going to happen unless you take some intentional intentional effort at it. You're going to have to pay attention. You have a responsibility to work at leaving a legacy. Did the children of Israel ever leave that legacy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. From time to time, they would take a hard right, hard left, and they would mess it up. But God would always call them back to the truths because God's purpose and plan is absolute. And I want you to understand, we live in difficult days today. I, I, I can't envision what it would be like. My parenting days are largely over. And, and I will tell you, I didn't have to deal with a lot of the things even this generation of, pa- of parents had to. And, you know, I'm only six or seven years past having kids uh, in, in, under my own tutelage and in, under my own roof. It was hard enough for me. It's really hard for some of you folks that are going through it. And I just want to say to you, though, don't be discouraged. God still has a plan. He's still got a purpose. He's still got promises. He wants to keep in your life. And he's called us to do something that's that's not impossible to do. But we're going to have to be smart and we're going to have to be strategic and we're going to have to be intentional because Satan, the Bible tells us very clearly, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, he has a plan for your defeat. He has a strategy, and he is seeking whom he can devour. That is his intention. You are at war for the very future of your kids, the very value of their souls, the very contents of their character, the very hope of their hearts. You are at war. So if that's the case, let's buckle up. Let's grab the tools we need. Let's pay attention. And by the way, some of the techniques just aren't all that difficult because this is what we saw. So in this passage that we just read, literally, here's what Moses said to them. He goes, you're going to be walking to the temple someday. 
And when you're walking to the temple, your kids are going to look up at you and they're going to say, hey, dad, what's with all the rules? Why is it we don't get to cook on the Sabbath? Why is it we can only walk a certain number of feet? Why is it that we've got all this regular, what is this about killing a sheep all the time? I don't get it. And why did we keep collect the blood? And why do they have this ritual? And why do we have to do this every week? Just like your kids are going to do that right now. Why won't you let me do this? Why can't I go to this movie? Why can't I spend the night with my friends? Why do we have to go to church? Why do I have to memorize verses? Why do I have to go to a Christian school? Why do you have to homeschool me? Why do I have to read my Bible? Why do we have to have invitation? You know why kids do this? Because they're kids. That's why. By the way, you did it too. We all do it. By the way, simply because you get questioned doesn't mean what you're doing is bad. It just means somebody's seeking a little information. And so God put it out here in black and white so clear for us. He goes, here's what you do. Don't freak out. Don't get angry. Don't threaten them. In my day, all we did was just shut up and do what we were told. No, don't do that. He said, why don't you do this? Tell them a story. Tell them where you've been. Tell them what happened to Grandpa. Tell them why we have the, the, the Passover Tell them what, 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 tell, tell them what that feast that we do every year is all about. Tell them why we kill a lamb. Just explain it. It's not that hard. But sadly, many of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, hang on, just, oh, wait, wait, one, we got one more to, uh, oh, can't believe they put that up there. Uh, uh, what was that again? Oh, yeah. You know what? Hang on just a minute. Um, I need to take a call, all right? Meanwhile, what are our kids doing? Here, it's your 12th birthday. Here's a smartphone. Here, you're eight. We're going out to eat. Let me prop the iPad up so that you don't bug me while we're waiting for our appetizers. Let me turn the stereo up in the SUV. Why don't we go ahead and put your gaming system in the bedroom so we're not fighting over the TV in the family room? Somebody came up to me after church and said, man, I bet you, and then he used an expletive, off a lot of people this morning, didn't you? <laughs> and you know why? Because we all live here. We all live here. You say, Dan, did you ever? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did. I gave in sometimes. It was just, do I regret it? You bet I do. What I wouldn't do to have a few more family meals around my dinner table. What I wouldn't do to have a few family game nights again. I miss those. But in the moment when you're tired and you had to work extra hours and the kids are cranky and your spouse is cranky and we make compromises. And so Moses said, I get it, I get it. But you can't afford to forget it. You can't afford not to use these moments. And so he said, when you're walking by the way, when you're sitting down, when you're rising up, when you're laying down, when you're hanging out, when you're taking a walk, when you're waiting for something to happen, he said, these are your moments, capture them. They're important. So today we reach this conclusion where Moses lays out this important part of leaving a legacy. He emphasizes the storytelling. 
emphasizes the history. And if there are two things that I really, really love on a personal level, it's storytelling and history. One of my degrees in my teaching field is history. When I was in high school, I started telling stories, largely because of the impact storytelling made in my life. I loved to listen to stories. I grew up in a world where there weren't very many TV channels, and if they were, there weren't very many shows to watch anyway. But we told a lot of stories. We told stories while we shucked corn. We told stories while we put up hay. We told stories while we sat on the back porch with a glass of sweet tea. We told stories while we were chopping wood for the winter to come. We would tell stories while we were driving to town because it was 20 minutes each way, and that's with no traffic. We just told stories. Some of them were goofy. Some of them were nonsensical. Probably a lot of them were exaggerated. But some of them were also very, very important. You see, because my dad at one point told me this story. He said, Dan, I didn't grow up like you. I grew up in a home where we didn't go to church except maybe Easter and Christmas. He said, my dad could cuss the bark off of a tree. He was a mean and angry man many times. I had no relationship with him because, quite frankly, every time I talked to him, he would yell at me. So my family wasn't real close, but I had an uncle that lived right across the road. In fact, you see where Grandpa lives? Because he lived one mile from us. You see where great-grandpa lives? Because he lived one mile from us. He said, I want you to understand that Uncle Eddie lived across the street from us. And he was young, and he was cool, and his kids were little. And I just go over there and hang out all the time because there's one place I didn't get yelled at. And he said, then one day I came home from school, and my mom told me, Mel... Uncle Eddie just dropped dead of a heart attack. And I couldn't believe it. He was young. He was only in his late 30s. And he was dead. This was the one guy that would listen to me. And Danny said this. He goes, that started off a trigger in my art and in my life. And I started asking questions. What happens when we die? What kind of God lets a guy in his 30s die anyway? Why am I here? Where am I going? Where did I come from? And he said, nobody could give me any answers, so I decided I was going to church. I went to church at the Disciples of Central Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Moberly, Missouri. And I went to the pastor, and I said, my uncle just died. I'm afraid. I don't know what happens when we die. What do I need to do to see my uncle again? What do I need to do to know that this matters? And he said, the guy who was the pastor looked at me and said, ah, you'll be off. All right, kid, just join the church and it'll be good enough. So I did. And he said, I knew nothing had changed. I had the same questions I always had. I did not have any hope. I had no peace. I didn't know what to do. And he said, I was in torment about it. I graduated from high school. My dad and I were like this all the time, all the time, all the time. And I finally said, I've had it. And I got in my car and I drove to Detroit, Michigan, and I moved in with my grandma just so I could have some space for my family. I had to get a job. So I got a job at a gas station, a full service gas station where they actually checked your oil, cleaned your windshield and pumped your gas for you. And he said, I got the night shift. So after about 10 or 11 o'clock, there wasn't much going on, but we were open all night, so I stayed there, and I had another guy that worked with me. His name was Roy Humble. Roy's about four or five years older than me, and Roy said to me one night, what happens when you die? And he goes, I don't know. I've been asking the questions. And my dad and he began conversations back and forth that led to that guy, Roy Humble, who would later be a pastor in the Appalachian Mountains of Kentucky. 
told my dad how to have a personal relationship with Christ. And over the course of a week or two of hearing this, my dad one night was laying in his bed in my great-grandmother's house in Detroit, Michigan, and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, rolled out of that bed and onto his knees and prayed a prayer like this, God, I don't know what's going on, but I know this, I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself, and I need you to forgive me my sins. Please let me know that you love me. Please take me into your family. Please save my soul. And he said, Dan, from that that moment forward, things changed in my life, and I had a relationship with God, and I began reading my Bible. I moved back to Moberly, and I started going to church, and he said, that is how God brought me to salvation. And folks, it's been 40 years, it's been 45 years, maybe 50 years since my dad first told me that story, and I just gave it to you again. Why? Because it imprinted on my heart the experience that he had of God's hand on his journey. And today I can tell you, I grew up in a church that preached the gospel. I grew up in a Christian school. I went to Bible college. I learned how to use ministry. I taught Sunday school. I did things like this. And, and now, now for almost 40 years, I have been in the ministry because of God's providential hand in a tiny little cow town in the sticks of Missouri where he reached down and saved a country boy out of a doubting existence and out of a miserable family home and out of all these things because God is good and God is sovereign and God is not willing that any should perish and that story means something to me today and your story means something too your story is probably more exciting than that but I will tell you this God had a plan for your salvation as sure as you're sitting here. And if you don't have salvation, God has a plan for your salvation as sure as you're sitting here. God wants you to be reconciled with him. And folks, that's the most important story you'll ever have, ever hear, or ever share. And that is the hope of leaving a family legacy behind. You see, because this earthly family is temporary, but that heavenly family is forever. That heavenly family is forever. Because when you accept Christ as your Savior, you become a part of His family. And people say, oh, we're all God's children. No, we're all God's creation. And there's a difference. We're created in His image, but we do, we're either today either a son of God or a son of Satan. He calls it that very clearly in the Scripture. And the way you become a son of God is for you to trust in the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the authority of God the Father. And when you do understand that and you give up your ability to save yourself and you trust Him alone for eternal life, at that moment there's an adoption that occurs. With all the power of heaven behind it, it declares you were born again. That old man is dead, the new man is born again, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and makes you alive. And that is your story when you trust Christ. And that is the story you and I need to share. And that is why we say, who do you know that is far from God but close to you that needs to hear the story of your spiritual journey? This is what Moses was saying 5,000 years ago. And this is what we should be doing today. So let me give you some principles very, very quickly of leaving a family legacy that involves the sharing of testimonies, the recounting, the, 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 the telling of stories so that your story can go to the next generation. Number one, you got to learn to answer the questions. Answer the questions. Look at what it says at the very beginning of that passage. It says, when your son asks you, not if your son asks you, but when your son asks you. You know why we know that? Because that's what kids do. They ask questions. And you know what parents too often do? We shut them down. 
Dumb trick. Something we shouldn't do. When your son asks you is the first step to answering the questions. When I was in teacher's college, they used to tell us this, the active mind is the questioning mind. You're not doing your job if you're not raising questions in the minds of those who are your students. How do I use this? What is it for? Where did it start? When, 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 when do I need to, to apply this? These are all questions that should be going on in your, in your mind as someone's teaching. And we can teach our children to ask good questions by sometimes asking questions themselves. You say, well, my kid's not asking any questions. Then teach them how. When did you, what is your first memory? When did you first realize that someday you're going to grow up and move away from home? How are you preparing yourself for adulthood? You say, well, those are deep questions for my six-year-old. Don't be, don't cut your six-year-old too short. Ask questions. What do you think happens when we die? What's the first thing you ever remember losing to death? Was it a goldfish? Was it a hamster? Was it a dog? Was it grandpa? Ask these guys, how did that make you feel? What questions did that raise up in your mind? But if you're going to have time to ask these questions and to answer the questions, let me tell you what's going to have to happen. You got to put these away. You got to put them away. You got to find time to connect. Get in your car and don't turn anything on. Go for a walk after dinner. May I give you a challenge? Say five times per week. This anybody can do. We have 21 meals a week. Five times a week, commit to having a family meal at which no technology is allowed. Some of you literally are breaking out in sweats. I, I, I feel the perspiration building. And I understand that. You know why it's that way? Because, hang on, I'm going to speak the truth to you. You know why it makes you anxious and nervous? You know why if you forget your phone at home, you turn around and go get it? Because I've done that. You know why when the internet goes down, you lose your mind? Because we're addicted. Yes, we're addicted. We're addicted to the dopamine and the endorphins that come with likes and clicks and giggles, stories, yeah. And well, how do you deal with an addiction? Do you ignore it? Do you feed it? No, you don't. Why? Because you know an addiction will eventually hurt you. It will ruin your life. It will limit you. It will enslave you. So what do you do? You stop it. You get control over it. You discipline it. You beat it down. You fence it in. And one way to fence it in is to simply say this. At my house, five days a week, five meals a week, five times a week, however you want to do it, 12, 16, push the limit up, but at least five. I think we can all agree that's a reasonable number. There'll be no phones at the table. There'll be no TV on. There'll be no Internet access allowed. We will not consult Siri, Alexa, or Google Nest. We will not use technology for one. Well, you see, Pastor Dan, we're, we're, we're busy folks. We got to, no, make it a priority. Make it a priority. You say, well, that's just legalistic. No, it's smart. And, you know, we need to really get beyond this idea of it calling everything that causes us to be self-disciplined legalistic. Because legalism has nothing to do with having good habits. 
It's a sorry excuse for people who want to wrap their laziness in the realm of spiritual conduct, and it's not working. All right? I don't think there's anybody in this room that's really in grave danger of being Jewish-level legalistic. All right? What they, were, what they were dealing with in Moses' day. We're, we're nowhere near that. But I do think a lot of us have a little problem telling ourselves no and putting the right priorities in place. And I know this hurts. This stings. I, I get that. And by the way, I'm a big old hypocrite. See, I can rationalize. I don't have any kids living at home now. But you know, I still have a marriage to maintain. And how many times do I go to the Longhorn and pull out my phone as soon as I've ordered and wait for the salads to arrive? And if you see me doing that in the restaurant, come flick me on the back of the head like my dad used to do, will you? No, please don't. It's very embarrassing. So. <laughs> but we do need a little discipline, don't we? So five times a week, sit down with your family, have a meal. You say, well, we eat out a lot. We, we, you know, we eat from bags. All right, bring the bag out, empty the bag out on the table, or get a paper plate, put it underneath your Chick-fil-A. All right? But talk. Say, well, sometimes it gets really awkward because nobody talks. All right? Just wait. Eventually, a conversation will get out. Or get some of those little cards they make, you know. Fix it. Fix it. Don't give in. Fix it. Fix it. Don't go to Home Depot, guys, without one of your sons or your daughters. Take your kids with you to lunch. Have some rituals. Saturday morning breakfast time with one of my kids. Every week. No fail. Do it. Why? So that when your kids ask you, Dad, why are we going to the temple? You've got the moment in place where you can have the meaningful conversation. Number two, tell the stories. Tell the stories. The reality is, Scripture says, say to your son, well, <laughs> once the question is asked, the spotlight's on you, mom and dad, aunt and uncle, grandma, grandpa, neighbor, elder, teacher, small group leader. And who doesn't like a good story? Jesus frequently used parables throughout his earthly ministry. We see that over and over and over in Scripture. What do we do when we take our kids to Sunday school? We want them to learn what? Bible stories. What's one of the first books we usually get our kids if we're growing up in a Christian home? A Bible story book, right? Yeah. Why? Because we want them to know about Noah. We want them to know about Adam and Eve. We want them to know about Isaac. We want them to know about fire coming down from heaven and Elijah and Elisha. And we want to, we want to know about, we want to know about um, Jonah and the whale. We want to know about David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba and Absalom and and. Can we continue? We want our kids to know that. What are those stories? Who should be telling them? You. Oh, yeah, but that's why I sent them to Sunday school. No, let's back up. All right. Who should be telling them? You. Let the people at Kid Life, let the people at your Christian school, your Christian preschool, let them be the second people to tell the story to them. You be the first. And you won't do it perfect. You'll leave out details. Your kids will correct you if you're wrong, by the way. They love doing that, and that's okay. Sometimes I used to make a mistake to see if they were listening. You know? And God brought four of every animal into the ark. Dad! You know? What, what, what? Did I do something wrong? It's not four, it's two. Well, good job, they're listening. All right? It's part of the technique. It's part of the game. Tell the story to them of how you learned character. How your mama prayed for you. Tell the story about grandpa who was the pastor. Connect them to their spiritual leg legacy and their spiritual heritage. Why? Because you got morons all over this planet teaching them to eat Tide Pods. 
They need another, they need another hero. They need, they need another voice. That's what God was simply saying. Be that voice. Tell that story. Third thing is this, visiting memorials. Visiting memorials is really, really a great opportunity. And we're coming up on summer vacation, and I kind of want to stick this in here for that. There are opportunities you have to visit significant places that for you may be a memorial of sorts. A couple weeks ago, when the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl, remember that weekend? Yeah, that was a great weekend. I was in Missouri, and I went to visit my mom. I hadn't seen my mom in over a year. My mom's got a dog. Thing's going to live to be 976 years old, apparently. She won't leave the dog, so I have to go see her. All right? Sorry, Mom. She's probably listening to this message. And you say, damn, don't do that. But anyway, so I went to see my mom. And while we were there, we often take drives. We drive through my old hometown. My hometown is nothing like it was when I was growing up. But hey, remember that store? And Mom will tell me a story. Yeah, when I was a teenager, there used to be a soda fountain in there, and this is what I did after school. I love hearing those stories. And this is where the first time I met your dad. This is where I used to sneak to the movies when mom and dad thought I was somewhere else. You know, tell me the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sometimes I'm like, mom, that's too much information. I don't want to know that. But one of the things I always do is I always go by the school and the church where I grew up. The church my dad started in our living room with a small Bible study, a small group that eventually grew. He wasn't a preacher, so they called a preacher. They paid him 50 bucks a week and all the vegetables and beef that we could raise. That was our first pastor. And he wasn't sophisticated, and he slaughtered the king's English, and he never even graduated from college. But I will tell you this, he loved Jesus. And he helped that little group of country people start a church, and we finally built our first building. We sacrificed to build that building. And I like to go in that building because it had a big old wooden roof on it, big old beams, wooden beams. And you could go to it, and if I were standing on the pulpit, I know it's right up there. My dad was teaching me how to hammer I was like 12 years old on this steep old roof. And he said, now line them up on this line, hammer them in. And I was doing that, and then I felt one go in really easy. So I got off the roof, went down there, and sure enough, I had missed the beam. And there was the nail of shame (laughs) sticking out of that boarding. Didn't make the beam. I don't know if anybody's ever noticed it over the years, but for years I would sit in church and look at Dan's nail of shame. You say, why is, that, why is that significant? It's a memorial. You know what it's a memorial to? It's a memorial of all the times I saw my dad get up and take us to church. It's a memorial of the fact that I can remember that he cared that we were in church. It was a memorial to the fact that when I was in eighth grade, he and my mom sacrificially helped start a Christian school because of things going on in our public school and they wanted us to have an option. It was a memorial to the decisions I made to follow Christ, the testimonies I gave after I came back from youth camp. The first date I ever had with a girl was at church where I sat next to her underneath the nail of shame. You see, it's important because it meant something. Where are your memorials in your life? Are there places that you visit that you remember when God spoke to you? Maybe it was an old youth camp. Maybe it was a church. Maybe it was your home. Maybe it was your first job. But there are some things that God has done in your life. Maybe it's a place he saved you from tragedy or even death. Or maybe it's a place where you almost died. And that in that spot, that exact location, the one you're thinking of right now in your mind is a moment where you realize God got my attention there. That's your memorial. Have you ever told anybody about it? Have you ever told your kids about it? A few weeks ago, my wife and I were down at Camp Lejeune over in eastern North Carolina visiting my son who was getting ready to be deployed. 
And as we were taking him back to his barracks, we went by a memorial and he said, let's stop here. And it was a memorial to the different Marines who had died over wars. We walked up to the Vietnam memorial that was there. And they have the names of all the Marines who was, were killed in duty. And we looked and they were alphabetized by year and I knew what year to look for and I knew what name to look for because I had a cousin that was killed in Vietnam. I looked for the name Richard Waterfield and I took a picture of it. And I told the story of Richard Waterfield last time I saw him, the things that happened. In fact, he wasn't a believer. The fact that years later, the girl that he was supposed to marry contacted me, all kinds of different things. And then as we were walking away with my son, the Marine, and my wife, an old guy who could barely walk using a, a, a cane with his daughter stopped and said, hey, I'm looking for a certain, certain name. Can you help me find it? And we spent maybe 30, 45 minutes, I don't know, trying to help that guy find the name on the wall. He told us the story of the friend that he had lost in Vietnam. See, that was a sacred place for him. And he was just wanting to tell that story. And folks, God has done some special things for you in your life that you need to share with the generation behind you. How God answered a prayer that that child of yours that now is causing you to have gray hair, but God answered your prayer by giving you that child. Have you ever shared the story? Have you ever showed your, your kids where you went on that date with your spouse that God brought you together and told you this is the one? This is the one? And then explain to them how God has the one for them someday? And that at some point they're going to intersect with them and this is the kind of girl or guy that you're praying that your son or your daughter ends up marrying and use that opportunity, that story to lay a fresh foundation. Share them that you pray for them. Share them that you desire these things for them. Share them the dreams that you You know, I dream for the day when all my kids are married to godly people and on Christmas we come together and we read the Christmas story together. I know we won't be able to do it every year because everybody's got other family, but if we could do that every year or two, every three years, maybe every once in a while we'll just rent a big house at the beach. Let's all come back together and let's look at what God's doing in our life. Those kind of things. You say, that just sounds so utopian. No, 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 it's biblical. It's biblical. That's why, you know, the, the, the sons of, of Isaac, the sons of Jacob, honored their dads and their death. And that's what we ought to aspire to, that God wants you to tell your story because your story is his story. And his story is history. Fourth thing is established traditions. Traditions are scheduled and repeatable. They have purpose and intention. Passover for children of Israel was a tradition that caused them to relive one of the most important things that ever happened in their history. But more than that, it was a reminder of the promise that the Messiah was coming. They can be acts of appreciation. They can be acts of gratitude. They can be rites of passage. There's celebrations of accomplishment. They can surround birthdays. They can surround first days of school, holidays, but have some family traditions that are just yours, that you value. And you know what? Every once in a while, it's going to go, it's going to go south so bad, and you're going to have a fight, you know, we would have game nights. We like to have family game nights in the summer for our traditions. And it wasn't family game night until somebody cried. It really wasn't. There was one year one of the kids just pitched a hissy fit and flipped the board and slammed something, and it broke one little edge of one of the, one of the uh, uh, blinds in the kitchen. 
oh, we milked that for years. People come over to our house and they say, see that broken blind? Yeah, happened during family game night. Let me tell you how that got broken. It became legendary. Why? Because that's what families do. We rib on each other, right? But you know, those moments are important. When I go home to Missouri, my sisters tell the most awful stories about me that are absolutely not true, but they tell them every year that I go. Like I've never heard them before and I've been listening to them for 60 years, but they tell them again. Why? That's, that's what we do as a church family. For those of you who have been in this church for years, we remember being over at CSD. We remember, some of you, I don't, some of you remember being at, at, at Havana Social Club. Hey, some of you remember our first Sunday here. Hey, how many of you remember coming in here and we wrote scripture right underneath here on the floor? Remember that? Hey, do some of you remember where we read the Bible for a whole week straight out loud so that before we had our first service here, we read the Bible all the way through beginning to ending in that lobby before we had our first service here. That's part of our story. That's part of our history. And we need to remember that and we need to share that. And that's what we do when we create traditions, established traditions. And the final thing is this. We create experiences. And experiences in our lives can bring meaning to the mundane. It can be something as simple as a walk after dinner or an evening of family fun. It can be spontaneous or it can be thoughtfully planned. They represent a break from the routine and they seize a moment, reclaiming times that otherwise might be missed or forgotten or wasted or ignored. We create the experiences. Sometimes they're just goofy. They're silly. They're a day in an amusement park. They're, they're, rest, they're, they're a water fight while you're washing the car. They're, they're squirt gun battles. They're tucking you in at night. They're moving night on the floor with a blanket and a bowl of popcorn. But these experiences are part of the legacy that you leave whereupon you build bridges across which you teach truth. And so he said, when your son asks you, why are we doing this? Give him a good answer. Talk about your past. Talk about the future. Talk about the present. But don't neglect that moment. It's an old hymn we used to sing. Some of you are old enough to remember it. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above. Of Jesus and his mercy. Of Jesus and his love. That song doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. Because we don't sing it anymore. It's an old gospel song. We sang, came out of the 40s and 50s. We sang it in my church. I still, I'll say still sing it for Pete's sake. But that song resonates in my heart. Even though my kids would roll their eyes at it. You know why? Because it's history. It's history. And if we're smart, we create the next generation of history today in our own homes. And I guarantee you this, in 40 years, your kids are not going to say, oh, dude, when I was 17, I saw the most hilarious TikTok. I cannot believe the YouTube video I saw. They're not, I promise you, they're not going to say that. But they are going to remember the fact that you said, see this box? Phones go in it whenever we're at this table. No exceptions, mine first. They'll tell their kids about that. And by the way, when you do that, you'll be the meanest parent, the most unreasonable tyrant in the world when you do that. 
and you just ask your kids if they've got a badge for that. Put it right on there and say, I'm proud of it. All right? And then have a good old time. Tell them about the olden days. Tell them how good God's been, how good God is, and how good God will be.